I'm Jimmy James Johnson, and sitting with me is a fly people are calling a national hero for his peaceful protest on Vice President Pence's thin, stark white hair during the vice presidential debate on October 7th. Welcome, Bill Muska. It is an honor to be here, Jimmy. What inspired you to make such a public stance against the vice president during the debate, Bill? Well, you know, Jimmy, just like my ancestors who came before me, I saw a piece of shit and I decided to sit on it. Brave words for a housefly. But you know, common housefly, there are rumors buzzing about you plan to run to be a house of representatives fly. Are those rumors true? I can neither confirm or defy the rumors, Jimmy. Just know my antennae and those of my SWAT team are alert and ready. I wouldn't uh, sell us short. Strong, strong, punny words. Thank you for your time and thank you for your service, Bill. I am proud to serve. Thank you, Jimmy. Stay tuned after the break because we have countless more gruesome, horrific events to tell you about. Twenty-three and me, and hey, you too. Cause this is episode 23 of Have a Blessed Gay, your weekly spiritual comedy podcast. I am your holy host, Tyler Martin. And since we've known each other for a little while now, I think it's time for you to know my middle name, Isaac. So yeah, my initials spelled Tim. I know, I know, I'm a pretty cool guy. <laughs> I like to imagine that there are a ton of people out there who recently gained a whole new perspective for their initials, like someone named Wanda Ann Patterson, or someone like William Andrew Palmer. After the song WAP, their names will never, and should never, be the same. This is going to be a really fun episode, and make sure to listen all the way through to the end to hear an excerpt from the new incredible piece for the B-Word by Kent Thomas called Working Toward Liberation, which revolves around his activism to support those who have experienced hurt, abuse, and trauma from the conservative Christian group called Young Life. It's a very interesting piece analyzing how some forms of activism can be traced to forms of white supremacy. If you would like to read the whole piece, which I highly suggest, please go to the website at haveablessgay.com slash the B word to check it out and read the other wonderful articles if you have not already. It's so beautiful to have a space like the B Word, designated for people to share their stories, their ideas, questions, and resources. And there are some incredible articles that will come out in the following weeks. So make sure while you're on the website to sign up for that newsletter. But before you do, I am so excited for today's topic. We are going to be looking at creation stories. These are super fascinating and tell a lot about society. And just as far as stories go, they are crazy imaginative. And it really makes you think how they conceive these grand ideas. I am going to dive into the Hindu creation story, the Babylonian creation story, and the Jewish Christian creation stories. Which, by the way, 
Did you know that there are two contradicting creation stories in the Christian and Hebrew Bible? Yeah, we're going to get into that. So get ready, my spiritual sluts, because we're going to deep throat some knowledge. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp, the leading provider of online counseling. Y'all, the world is crazy and mental health is important. Some might even call it spiritual. I personally use BetterHelp myself and absolutely love what they're doing. BetterHelp makes professional counseling accessible, affordable, and convenient. So if you're struggling emotionally, battling anxiety, or you can't stop crying after an episode of Queer Eye, BetterHelp can be there for you anytime, anywhere. Go to my personal link at BetterHelp help.com slash bless gay to check it out and get what 10% off the best part is you don't even have to leave your house they offer four ways to speak with a licensed counselor video calls phone calls real-time chat and direct messaging all counselors have been qualified and certified by their state's professional board in other words, you're not talking to a lobster dressed in human clothes. They're legit. All you gotta do is go to my link at betterhelp.com slash gay and begin the questionnaire to match you with a therapist who is uniquely qualified to serve your needs. How sexy. It's super duper easy and you're matched within 24 hours or less. BetterHelp has a monthly subscription rather than paying per session, which makes it cheaper. But if finances are still a concern, financial aid is available for those who qualify. Get counseling, improve your life, and help this podcast out in the process by going to betterhelp.com slash gay. Sign up today and get 10% off. That's betterhelp.com slash gay. In the beginning, there was nothing. There was everything. And there was us. Okay, I just made that up, but doesn't that sound like it's from something? Yeah, right? Some cultures and religions truly believe creation stories as factual accounts of how our universe was created, totally disregarding science, like the current leaders of our country. Science? Who's that? They sound logical. <laughs> I don't know if I can get behind that. Some people try to marry the creation stories with science. Then, of course, there are others who see these as just myths and fantastical stories. Me included. But they tell so much about humanity, and we can learn a great deal about society through them. And they're just dope stories. I'm going to start with the Jewish and Christian creation stories. As a refresher, the Jewish Bible is known as the Tanakh, and the creation story is located in the beginning of the Tanakh, called the Torah. The Torah is the name for the first five books of the Jewish Hebrew Bible. Now, if you're more familiar with the Christian lingo, it's in the beginning of the Old Testament, <laughs> which I can never get over how fucking condescending that is, that Christians named the Jewish Bible the Old Testament. That is just so rude and hilarious. Anyway, a lot of people, including Jews and Christians, do not know that there is more than one creation story within Genesis. Yeah, did you know that? There are two, and the two stories contradict each other. 
It's crazy. I didn't learn about this until college, and I grew up in a very religious household with a family that is infested with Christian ministers, but it's just not really taught. So let's break down these two opposing creation stories. The first story is what is called the Priestly Narrative. Miranda Priestly's office. The first account was declared the Priestly account because of the belief that it was written by priestly individuals, not Miranda Priestly, unfortunately. But can you imagine what that would sound like? This stuff? Oh... Okay, I see. You think this has nothing to do with you. You go to your closet and you select out, oh, I don't know, that lumpy green sweater, for instance, because you're trying to tell the world that you take yourself too seriously to care about what you put on your back. But what you don't know is that that sweater is not just green, it's not chartreuse, it's not emerald, it's actually mullein. And you're also blithely unaware of the fact that when the universe was created, God designed it in six days, including all greenery. And then I think it was Eve, wasn't it, who defied God and his creation with the apple? And then started wearing mullein to cover up her sins. Then that tradition filtered down through the ages and then trickled on down into some tragic casual corner where you no doubt fish it out of some clearance bin. However, that green represents millions of dollars, countless jobs, and our Lord God's creation. And so it's sort of comical how you think that you've made a choice that exempts you from the fashion industry when in fact you're wearing the sweater that was selected for you by the very creator of this universe from a pile of stuff. Y'all, I just did Miranda's entire monologue. What? is going on right now. Okay, so all that to say, the priestly narrative is thought to have been written by priests. Great, okay. So in this narrative, Yahweh, or God, is portrayed as an all-powerful and mighty creator. The picture of an omnipotent God fathering the earth and all its inhabitants is painted. The authors use truly beautiful imagery to tell the story of how the supreme God created us and the earth. Now the second creation story is known as the Yahwist version. It is the oldest source whose narratives make up half of Genesis and the first half of the book Exodus and pieces of the book Numbers. These authors paint a more human-like God, and in this version, the chronological order is actually very different from the priestly version. For example, in the priestly version, humankind was created after the animals, however in the Yahwist version, the animals were created after humankind. But what's most interesting is not the order. It is something I think that has greatly impacted societies around the world, which is the creation of the female Eve. In the more popular, well-known version, Eve is practically made to be Adam's little sexy sex doll. Genesis 2, verse 19. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. Notice it reads, Helper. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. 
Misogyny, gross, gross, gross. Okay, so here's the second version. Now, you will quickly understand why it is the less popular one. Genesis 2, verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Interesting, right? In this one, the man and woman are completely equal. God even references that they are both made from their image. Whereas the first, he creates a woman not from his image, but from Adam's rib. But actually, let's talk about Adam's waist for a hot sec. Without a rib, I'm sure he looks snatched. Well, at least from that one side. The first version, the one where women are lesser than, is the most well-known and most widely taught. Although bullshit, it makes sense. Who has historically run these religions? Men, not women. So it makes sense that they would push that narrative. That's the one I grew up learning. The only one I was ever taught, actually. So from childhood, I was being told that women were a god's afterthought. And that is not so good. Even in the biblical literature class I took in college, not one person knew of the second version. And there is something just really messed up about that. So just for funsies, ask around and see what creation story people remember being taught from the Jewish and Christian Bible. It'll be interesting. And please do let me know what you learn. Next up, and one of my favorites, is the Babylonian creation story, which has some variation depending on the source, but one that is revered is found in the Enuma Elish, which consists of seven clay tablets, where the story was recorded in Old Babylonian somewhere between the 16th and 12th centuries BCE, so like a few years ago. Okay, here is how the story goes. Before anything had a name, before there was ground or sky or the sun or the moon, there was Apsu, the sweet water sea, and Tiamat, the salt water sea. The two seas merged and mingled and created the gods Lamu and Lahamu. And when Lamu and Lahamu got together, they were like those people you invite to your party and then without your consent, they invite other people, even though it's like totally not their party or their place, but whatever. So they create this whole slew of gods. And now we have this first generation of gods living in nothingness. Basically, it's kind of like the show Big Brother, but with gods. So of course, being like Big Brother, they get it on and create even more gods. And out of those arose the mighty Ea and his many brothers. Ea and his brothers were the neighbors upstairs from hell. They surged over the waters day and night. Neither Apsu nor Tiamat could get any fucking sleep. Melatonin wasn't enough. They got a prescription sleep aid. Yeah, it's still not enough. And they even tried to plead with the gods. They were like, hey, love y'all, love what you're doing. But like, could you tread a little softer? And Ea was like, uh... Yeah, no. I like me. I like my life. I like the way I live my life. So Apsu decided the only way to have some peace and quiet was, of course, 
to murder Ia and his brothers. Yeah. I mean, he did ask nicely first, like he tried, you know? So he begins to plot their demise with some of the first generation gods. But Ia hears of their plans and, yeah, kills him first. You know, sometimes when you're planning a surprise, especially a murder, it's probably not in your best interest to go around telling a lot of people about your plans. But also, you know, don't murder. Okay, so then a war broke out among the gods. Tiamat was furious that her mate was killed, Avi, and she began producing great and ferocious monsters to kill Ia and his brothers. She created poisonous dragons, demons, and serpents, you know, like you do. But while Tiamat was creating her army, Ia and the goddess Demkina created the god of gods. Marduk. Marduk was the most powerful creation ever. Well, until flushable booty wipes anyway. He had four eyes and four ears and could see and hear everything in creation. His eyes flashed with lightning and when he spoke he breathed fire. So the other gods were like, ah shit, and cowered before him and called him the great sun. Marduk got ready for battle. He gathered the four winds to clear the path to Tiamat. He burst out of the sky in his flaming chariot. And I don't mean a super gay chariot. I mean, it was literally in flames. And before Tiamat could do anything, Marduk cast a hurricane into her mouth. She swallowed the hurricane and it almost burst her apart from the inside. And because she was having the most intense heartburn of her life, she was kind of preoccupied and couldn't cast a single spell. Using this as an advantage, Marduk shot one of his arrows and it cut her neatly in half. Marduk took half of her body, raised it to the heavens to create the sky, and used the other half to form the earth. He was victorious and now the undisputed king of the universe. He created the days of the year, the planets and their paths in the heavens, the stars and their constellations and the moon. He became the sun and gave all other gods their responsibilities. But after some time, he decided to create a creature that could serve the gods and bear the burden of the hard work looking after the earth, i.e. humans. It is a hard knock life for us, am I right? Marduk first created a structure from bone, left over from the bones of the dead monsters from the war. Then he formed the flesh around it and breathed life into it. Man was given his name and took up residence on the earth while the gods ascended into heaven, thus relieving the gods from their eternal labor. Wow, and there it is. So not as quaint of a creation story as a Jewish and Christian one. However, there are actually a ton of parallels between them. Many scholars have written about it, so if you are curious, Google away. The next and last creation story I'm going to tackle is a slightly lighter and oddly more comedic one. It is one of the Hindu creation stories. Now, there are actually several creation stories within Hinduism because they believe space and time to be infinite and multi-layered. The universe is considered to be just one of many, which is so cool, right? One of the more popular stories, and quite a fun one, goes something like this. A 
giant cobra named Shisha is just floating around on some water in a unicorn floaty sipping on mimosas, and asleep on top of their belly is Lord Vishnu, who is in a state of peace. But when Lord Vishnu wakes up, he looks down to see, not morning wood, but something less exciting. A fucking lotus that had grown out of his navel. Ooh, it gives me goosebumps. But wait for it, because that's not all. In the middle of the lotus sat Vishnu's servant, Brahma, who's basically the architect of the universe. He's like the god of creation. Vishnu looks down and he's like, hey, belly button dude, it's time to begin. And Brahma's like, yeah, dude, I have a gift card to Home Depot. Let's do this thing. But as he's creating the universe, a la Bobby Burke, a demon appears and just like Swiper himself from Dora the Explorer, swipes and steals the world and throws it far out into the cosmic ocean. But Vishnu's like, hell no, not today, Satan, comes to the rescue, kills the demon, morphs into an animal, and rescues the world. Gay rights at its finest. He gives the world back to Brahma, and Brahma's like, great, now I can keep on creating. And he does. I find creation stories so incredibly fascinating, because they really are telling of how our societies think, where we came from, and what we're obsessed with. Religion, for better or worse, has had a major impact on society. The Jewish and Christian creation stories, some people really believe them. Well, one of them. Again, most people don't realize that there are actually two. You know, religious people can be pretty funny, stating with the utmost confidence in what is and what is not, when they don't know what they are actually talking about. Too scared to learn more than what they're told. Like that Adam and Eve narrative. We're still battling with that in 2020. You see it all around, that same narrative spinning over and over. And that's a big reason why it's important to learn history, to equip us with knowledge so we can navigate this shit. And there are some crazy creation stories out there. I might share some more later on, because I do think it's so fun and interesting. I love creation stories, and I love this piece you are about to hear an excerpt from. Kent Thomas is a social worker who lives in Tacoma, Washington. He is a body liberation coach and is passionate about eating disorder recovery and body liberation in queer communities. Kent is one of the organizers of Do Better Young Life, a collective that advocates for the intersectional inclusion of all who have been harmed by Young Life. Young Life is an evangelical Christian group for young adults that Kent was involved with. But after a series of events with Young Life showing abusive behavior toward those within the LGBTQ community, on June 29th, he wrote an extensive post on Instagram saying, Young Life says all queer kids are welcome, but partial inclusion at an arm's length is even worse than overt exclusion, similar to the topic I talked about in episode 21. Kent ended the post by encouraging others to use the hashtag DoBetterYoungLife to tell their stories. Soon after, he was flooded with messages. Hundreds and then later thousands of former Young Life participants were posting their own stories under the same hashtag about how they felt Young Life had hurt them when they came out of the closet or promoted conversion therapy. Kent has used this outpour to do wonderful work, but this work isn't easy. 
which he talks about in this article for The B Word, specifically how he came to realize that his eagerness to tirelessly fight was similar in nature to white supremacist strategies. Here is just a short snippet from his article, Working Toward Liberation, read by the author himself, Kent Thomas. About a week into Do Better Young Life, my anxiety started to set in. I started to feel like I had to do more every day to keep up the momentum. Without noticing it, I started thinking, the lives of youth are on the line, and if we don't do this right, the blood is on our hands. My response to this anxiety was to spend increasing amounts of time and energy on our Instagram account, the hub of our work. People kept following, momentum kept increasing, and with it so did my anxiety, fear, and lack of boundaries. About six weeks in, this all came to a screeching halt when we were locked out of our Instagram because of a login issue. I tried late into the night to get back into our account, but nothing worked. All I could do was send an email into the abyss of Instagram's support database. The despair I felt was all-encompassing, and I felt like an absolute failure as our story posting schedule fell behind and our DMs piled up. I was mad at myself and kept thinking about the youth who would be forced to fend for themselves if we couldn't keep up the momentum, since Young Life would be able to successfully squash DBYL just like every other effort for inclusion or transparency. It took a bit over two days to finally get back into our Instagram, and those 50 hours taught me a lot about how I was orienting around DBYL. I recognized that I was feeling constricted by my attempts to work for liberation and that the driving force behind my efforts were founded in aspects of white supremacy, outlined by Kenneth Jones and Tima Okun. Briefly, these aspects are defensiveness, quantity over quality, worship of the written word, either-or thinking, individualism, progress is bigger slash more, right to comfort, objectivity, fear of open conflict, power hoarding, and paternalism. My perfectionism, sense of urgency, individualism, and ideas of progress, all of which made DBYL feel so stressful, are aspects of our ego-based white supremacy culture. It's easy for me to fall into the norm of hustling and grinding myself into burnout, and the gut-wrenching despair I felt with the Instagram troubles was the shocking wake-up call I needed. Given how our school systems and work environments function, not to mention the American way of being the biggest and best, it's no wonder myself and others have trouble unlearning these knee-jerk aspects of white supremacy culture, even when we're advocating for social change. Aspects of white supremacy creeping into our work for liberation is a recipe for disaster because the systems we're seeking freedom from have nearly unlimited resources to squash us. In this way, tirelessly fighting against our oppressors without rest is in itself a form of oppression. We can easily grind ourselves into a pulp if we don't center joy and self-care in our work. Organizations like Young Life that were founded by white men under a theological tradition of whiteness are steeped in these aspects of white supremacy culture. Young Life's responses, or lack thereof, to DBYL ticks off every aspect of white supremacy culture. The same is true for any system of power's response to calls for equity. Young Life and similar structures would like us to crash and burn under the pressure of their threats, gaslighting, and co-opting. See dobetter.younglife.org for an example of Young Life co-opting DBYL. They would like us to get so caught up in perfectionism, individualism, and a sense of urgency that we burn out before real change happens. But there's another way. 
It is a fascinating read. Please go to haveablessgay.com slash the B word to read the entire article. And please do check out all the incredible work he and his team are doing to support those who have been hurt so badly by Young Life. If you have stories like his, I would love to hear from you. As always, please do reach out to me. I love hearing your stories and want to help in any way that I can. If you are a part of this spiritual journey, I would greatly appreciate you leaving a quick review and rating the podcast wherever you listen. Your support means the world to me. Now, if you are struggling in this moment, you can't laugh it off and you need someone. I always post helplines in the show notes, so check them out if you need to. Just please remember this. You are special. You are purposeful. And you are fucking beautiful. Have a blessed day, y'all.